Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans 3, verses 27 through 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we confess that we are in great need this morning, in need of you to dig out our ears that we may hear of the good news of your grace and your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in this portion of your scripture. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Lieutenant Louis Zamperini was a bombardier during World War II on a B-24 Liberator called Superman. Exceptional name. While they had flown many successful missions on April 21st, 1943, Superman flew his last. He went down in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. After floating in the Pacific for 47 days, Louis and his pilot, Russell Phillips reached the Marshall Islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and they were immediately captured by the Japanese military. They were taken as POWs, prisoners of war, and they were tortured at multiple camps all over Japan for nearly two years. Zamperini's chief tormentor was a man they nicknamed the Bird. And when the Allied forces finally overcame the Japanese in the Pacific, the the bird went into hiding, and all the POWs returned home to their families, to their countries. Zamperini, however, was haunted. He was haunted by his tormentor. He was haunted by the memory of the bird. He would have nightmares of his tormentor, and he would have nightmares of him strangling his tormentor, strangling the bird if he had ever found him. You see, his only way of coping with the difficulty and the pain that his life had come to was to give himself to alcohol. So he abused alcohol in an attempt to numb the pain, in an attempt to escape the difficulties And all that changed, though, in 1949. At the encouragement of his wife, Cynthia, Louis attended a Billy Graham evangelistic crusade. And it was there, that night, as he heard the good news of the gospel, that Zamperini met the living God. He came face to face with his creator, and his life would never be the same. This life-altering encounter had drastic implications for his life. You see, his, his nightmares ceased. 
And instead of dreaming of killing the bird, he offered him forgiveness. In 1998, Zamperini actually went to Japan and attempted to find the bird in order to express his forgiveness and to tell him why he was offering him forgiveness. And he stopped drinking. He was freed from the clutches of alcohol abuse. And not only that, but he spent the rest of his life as a Christian evangelist, speaking to anyone who would listen to him about the good news of Jesus Christ. His encounter with God on that day in 1949 had life-changing implications. And the same thing is true when you place your faith in Jesus. There are necessary changes that come along with this life-altering encounter with the living God. You cannot be the same person you were before. It's impossible. It's by faith that you appropriate this gift of God offered to you in Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says, the law of faith. faith it's not just the entrance requirement into God's kingdom. But it's what sustains life with God. It's faith. And Paul here challenges both Jews and Gentiles to a life of faith. And there are massive implications to faith. In a series of three rhetorical questions, Paul introduces three implications of what it means to live by this law of faith. We'll see first that faith humbles the rebellious. We'll see second that faith unites the rebellious and lastly that faith tames the rebellious. So first faith humbles the rebellious. Look with me at verses 27 and 28. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul anticipates a natural question from his Jewish readers. What about our boasting? This is what we do. We boast. Chuck helped us understand this a few weeks ago, uh, what this first century Jewish boast looked like. He said that the Jewish boast included two things. First, they boasted in their possession of the Mosaic law. They believed that by possessing the Mosaic law, God had chosen them, that he had set them apart, that they were inherently better than any other people group in the world. This was a national boast. They thought they were simply better they also boasted in their individual performance of the Mosaic law. The Pharisees and the Zealots were particularly good at obeying the letter of the law. In fact, they set up multiple laws as safeguards so that you wouldn't break the actual laws. They added to it. And with these two things, the possession of the law and their performance of the law, they thought they could make a claim on God that they could require his faithfulness and they could claim superiority over their neighbors. But, but Paul says, no, that's not how it works. 
This boast is excluded. It's excluded because no one can make a claim on God based on works of the law. People are made right with God based solely on the work of God in the Son of God. And it's only appropriated by faith. That is, faith in Jesus Christ alone is the, is the only means by which we receive salvation. And so it humbles you. It humbles you because you have to admit there's nothing you can do to earn it. You cannot work hard enough. You cannot obey enough. It doesn't matter how good you are or how well you have obeyed the law. We're all in the same boat. We all arrive at the same verdict apart from Jesus. It's sinner. That's who we are apart from God's work in our life. But humility is difficult because we love to boast. Don't we? We love to make much of ourselves. We love to boast about our personal accomplishments. We love to talk about how great our family is and take pride in what we've done as parents. We love to boast about our lifestyle. Just look at social media. It is your boast to the world. Look at how great my life is. Look at how wonderful my family is. But y'all, that's not how it works in the economy of God. You're standing with God. It's not based on your effort. It's not based on your work. And frankly, you don't want it to be. Because if it was, we would all fail miserably. So faith humbles the rebellious. It puts us all on the same playing field in need of God's grace. And then secondly, faith unites the rebellious. Take a look, take a look at what Paul says in his second major question in verses 29 and 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. See, as Christianity developed in the first century, there arose arose a question regarding circumcision and the necessity and continuation of circumcision. There was a a group of folks who taught that you had to become Jewish first before you could become Christian. And so if a pagan Gentile wanted to become a Christian, he had to first be circumcised as a Jew. But Paul actively contradicts this assumption. In the first three chapters of Romans, Paul labors arduously at great lengths to teach that both groups are rebellious, that all have sinned, that all have fallen short of God's glory. But God unites rebellious Jews and he unites rebellious Gentiles because both are justified by faith. And Paul appeals to Israel's creed in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. God is one who will justify 
the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul appeals to the oneness of God, this basic Jewish doctrine as evidence for the unity of the circumcision and the uncircumcision by faith. And this was always the purpose anyways. When God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis 12, it was to bless him and to make him a great nation. But also that in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And in Exodus 19, God tells the fledgling nation of Israel that they are to be to him a kingdom of priests. This means that they were to function as priestly intercessors for the world, the whole nation, as a kingdom of priests. They were to live sacrificially for the world, and they were to tell the world the good news of the, of the gospel. They were always to be a light to the Gentiles, not separating themselves from the Gentiles. The point was always the world that all the rebellious around the world would be united by faith in Jesus Christ. So I just ask you simply, what dividing walls are you putting up or have you put up that Jesus has broken down in his own flesh? Who are the circumcision and the uncircumcision to you? Where is that divide you know, we live in a crazy, polarizing culture, a polarized society, and we have to pay close attention not to allow the divisions that our culture sets up to infiltrate the church, because it's all too easy to let what they say out there determine what we do here. We live in that polarizing culture. There are massive political divisions in our country. Should those define how we divide the church? By no means. There are massive divisions over mask wearing and vaccinating. Should that divide your fellowship within the church? May it never be. And when the pandemic is over, socioeconomic divisions ethnic divisions, educational divisions will remain. Society's divisions will remain. Will you allow society's divisions to define who you fellowship with within the church? Because friends, when Jesus draws you to himself, he draws you to each other. And these distinctions, ethnic distinctions, political distinctions, Socioeconomic distinctions, they may remain, but they are no longer what divide. Because faith in Jesus Christ, it unites the rebellious who are both justified by faith in Jesus. And so faith humbles the rebellious. Faith unites the rebellious. And then lastly, faith tames the rebellious. In verse 31, Paul poses a natural question that would concern his readers about this law of faith. He says, do we then overthrow or nullify the law by this faith? 
by no means. On the, on the contrary, we uphold the law or we fulfill the law. Paul's Jewish audience would be concerned that by emphasizing faith apart from works, that Paul is emptying or nullifying the Mosaic law, that he's encouraging disobedience. They're concerned he's encouraging a licentious lifestyle. But Paul answers with the strongest objection, by no means. Another way to translate that is, may it never be. It's actually the opposite, Paul says. By emphasizing faith apart from works, rather than nullifying the law, we fulfill it. Now you may ask, what then does fulfill even mean? What does it mean for us to fulfill the law? Well, this is a theme that Paul's introducing here, and he's going to expound later on in Romans, in the middle of Romans 6 and at the beginning of Romans 8. And in Romans 6, he speaks of being slaves to righteousness rather than slaves to sin. He says that this salvation enables you to live obediently from the heart. And in chapter 8, verse 4, Paul says that in Christ, God condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, by placing your faith in Jesus, you are freed from the clutches of sin and death. You are freed to walk in the ways of God's law. God in his infinite grace, as he offers you his son by faith, he also sends you his spirit by faith to dwell in you. And it's that same spirit that transforms your heart from a heart of stone and he transforms it into a heart of flesh ready to receive God's law receptive to God's commandments. And of course, your obedience is going to be imperfect. Paul's not advocating a sort of pious perfectionism, but he is advocating faith-filled obedience in which your rebellion is slowly tamed by the grace of God and you are conformed to God's law. You are empowered to obey. So a good diagnostic is to simply ask yourself, what areas of my rebellion need to be tamed? Asking that question and allowing God to search you and to empower you to listen and to obey. How am I boasting? In what am I boasting? How am I creating divisions in my fellowship in the church? In what ways? Am I walking outside the boundaries of God's moral law? And again, friends, your obedience will be imperfect. God hasn't taken away all of your sinful tendencies, but he has given you the necessary resource of his spirit to tame your rebellion and to free you to walk in his ways. Now I'll close with this. A few weeks ago, we started yet another 
major home renovation. You guys are probably thinking to yourselves, by the end of this, John, you're going to have a brand new home. You're right. That's the goal. We're taking off the old vinyl siding. We're restoring the stucco that was underneath it that they put the vinyl siding on in the late 90s. We're moving the front door. I'm going to redo the siding around the the main entrance. We're redoing all the gable ends, the soffit, the the fascia, all of the gutters around the whole house. I'm removing the deck, and I'm going to replace it with a paver patio and hopefully fix the the broken carport. This is a massive undertaking, and I'm going to let you in on a little bit of a secret. In all of these projects, there are unforeseen obstacles, right, that I run into, unfortunately. As I was pulling down the, the soffits a few weeks ago, I discovered that a rodent had chewed, chewed through the, 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 jacket, the outer jacket around the main supply line to the electrical box in my home. A rodent had chewed through the, it's not good especially when it comes to electricity. I discovered that there, was, there were multiple roof leaks and that there was rotted wood that needs to be replaced and now I need to replace my roof. That was not in the plans, by the way. Unforeseen obstacles. I discovered that there's a window, discovered an actual window covered up by the vinyl siding and covered up by drywall. Unforeseen obstacles. You see, I'll let you in on another secret. I get to the point in all of these projects where I don't personally have the necessary knowledge or the necessary resources to accomplish the task. I'm not a professional, but I, in my uh, stupidity, try to undertake professional tasks And I don't have the necessary knowledge, the necessary resources to accomplish them. So I have a commercial contractor across the street, right? He has been a great blessing. He gives me, he gave me the name of his siding guy and he gave me the name of his roofer. I've got a neighbor down the road who gave me the name of his stucco guy who's going to help with the stucco on the exterior of our house. I have a friend, I have friends in this church who have offered their assistance, connecting me to contractors and subcontractors. There's a lady down the street around the corner who just loves to give advice because she has renovated like 14, 15 homes in our neighborhood. That's what she just does. She takes homes and makes them new and nice again. I'm surrounded, surrounded by the necessary resources to accomplish the task at hand. And y'all, it keeps me from freezing up. It empowers me to keep moving forward. You see, the Christian life of faith is similar. When you recognize that God has graciously given you the necessary resources to sustain this life of faith, it empowers your faith. It helps you to keep moving forward. It allows you to receive those implications of the life of faith. By faith, he gives you his son 
And he gives you his spirit to humble you before him and before the world. He offers you these gifts to unite you to other rebellious sinners. And he does so also to tame your rebellion. He frees you, friends, to walk in his ways by the law of faith. So have faith. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do give you thanks for the gift of your Son and for the gift of your Spirit. We're grateful that you offered your Son as a sacrifice to be received by faith, and we give you thanks that you give us your Spirit to dwell in us and to conform us, transform us, that we might look more like Jesus. We ask that you would continue to empower our obedience. Help us to walk in your ways. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.